All right, what is up, everybody? It is time for another episode of the Chasing Waypoints podcast, and this time around, we are talking to Adam from Speed Deluxe Vintage Adventures. So, heard from him a couple of weeks ago, was interested in coming on the podcast, and as soon as I checked out the Instagram profile, I was like, oh yeah, we need to definitely talk about this one. So, I'm not going to give away too much about what he does or what they do as a group. We're going to find out here a little bit more in just a minute. Have you guys been keeping track of some of the players that are out in the rally world? You might have seen Skyler Houses in Saudi Arabia. It looks like he was on the BAS Dakar bike once again. Having some fun out there. Also got another guest coming up too. Jacob Argybite out there in Glamis today. This is Saturday, March 20th. He's out in Glamis right now. Mason Klein getting lost in the desert, finding some waypoints, chasing him down, as you will, no pun intended. So, a lot of stuff going on. Baja Rally coming up, Sonora Rally coming up first. Got to be a lot of fun, a lot of stuff going down, a lot more schools training. If you guys didn't catch the episode last week, we did have an episode and spoke with Alec Martins, Alex Martins of Rally Pan Am and Conflict Motorsports. Definitely want to check out that episode if you have not done so already. You want to back that up and, and figure it out, learn some suspension stuff. A lot of cool stuff for the 790, 890 adventure. And pretty much any other dirt bike and a lot of cool stuff in his story and how uh, Conflict became the household name that it is now for Adventure Suspension. So, let's get that link over to Adam now. See if we can get him on the podcast here in just a second. Kill some of that music. Yeah. Yeah, definitely looking forward to it. It's going to be really, really fun. We're finally starting to see some open borders. We're starting to see some stuff going down and more events popping up. So people doing some riding. I live out in the sticks here in San Diego, and I am seeing more and more motorcycles heading south. Hopefully they are still abiding by their social distancing stuff and making sure that they are being safe. Last thing we want is to cause more trouble down there. So... Lots of fun, but yeah, let's find out. Got that like on Instagram, just waiting for him to jump on. Just a second, but yeah, so I'm excited. I am flying out to Texas here in a couple weeks. Going to go finally get to see the Conflict Motorsports shop, see what that is all about. Learn some suspension stuff because there's a lot of black magic that goes on in there. That's why we pay people like Alex Martins uh, to do our suspension. So, cannot wait. Super excited. KTM 790 Adventure. I didn't get the 890. So many people sold their bikes that I saw and jumped to an 890. I don't know. It was kind of interesting that Quinn Cody was testing an 890 all along and smoking everybody in the hair scrambles. If you've ever seen something so interesting... Uh, watching an 890 smoke every 450 on the field. But all right. Anyway, so let's get to the show. Looks like Adam is now on and connected. Adam, are you there? Yeah. Uh, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah, I can hear you. What's up, bud? <laughs> good. Uh, doing good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. It is Saturday and, and it's kind of sunny in San Diego. 
Yeah, it's actually uh, a beautiful day here in Chattanooga. So uh, 65 degrees, sun's out. It's awesome. Yeah, it sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like San Diego. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, except just on the other side of the uh, the states. So, yeah, dude, I like we talked a couple weeks ago, like hey, you were interested in, in jumping on the podcast and, and, and talking a little bit about it. But like I'm on the website right now and I'm just checking out the stuff that you guys do. And, and you know, with the Vintage 1000, I just saw there's yeah. Vintage 500. There's some yeah. stuff going. So what's going on with it? What, how did this get started? What, what's it about? Um, so it kind of started um in, well, it started in 2015, and um, some friends and I were at Vintage Motocross Race, and um, you know, all day, and we came back and hit a restaurant on the way back, and we were all chatting. And uh, one of the guys mentioned um, some guys, I think out west, that did something called, I think it's called the 555. I think I've got this totally wrong, but and it was five, it was like 500 miles, 500 dollar bikes, and something else. Maybe I don't think it was five days, but it was the basic principle was they got some bikes and did a trip on it. And, um, I had, uh, I just really got back into riding dirt bikes. I, I kind of rode off road a little bit when I was a kid and, um, was just getting back into it on a vintage triumph and, um, kind of really wanted to do some kind of trip on it. And that conversation got me thinking, um, about doing a trip and, you know, I didn't really want to do it on my own. And my wife, who has been riding for 20 years, didn't want to do it. Um, and I knew the friend that that I was speaking to at the restaurant, Chastin, I, I knew he would be down for it, whatever. I kind of was like, hey, let's do this. He'd be like, yeah, okay. And um, so I was sat at the kitchen table on a Sunday morning in April 2015 and um, wrote on a piece of paper, Vintage 1000. And, uh, and in my mind, I was like, oh, okay, what would I want this to look like? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm writing on the same sheet of paper. Um, motorcycles must be uh, manufactured before 1980. Um, be a thousand miles, as much off-road as possible. Um, and I think at the point, I'd also put that bikes would be under a thousand dollars. Okay. And so, yeah, and um, and I think there was something else, but that was the basic premises premise of it. And I just took a photograph of it and put it on Instagram, and I put "Who's in" at the bottom in big letters, and put it on Instagram, and it was out there. I was like, you know, I've been thinking about this. I'm just going to throw it out there. Let's do it. And um, I really had no idea what I was getting myself into at that point, and. Um, even just mapping a thousand miles. I mean, I had no experience at all. Um, the only time I'd ever seen a roll chart or a road book was either on a, on a Dakar bike or on a, uh, they, they have a local bike show here in Chattanooga every Friday night. They shut down a block of town and, uh, an old guy I know who's been riding since the sixties was down there with a, an OSA enduro bike that he'd restored. And he had the original, road chart holder that he'd made with a top with a clock in it and everything from the 70s oh, wow so i was talking to him about this and i was like oh man what a great idea that would be great to navigate using that i want it to be a period correct trip 
so and i'm like well how do i do this you know <laughs> and um the first year we actually so i started researching things where could we go what could we do i found the trans america trail which i'd never heard of um and Sam, the guy who organized the Trans-America Trail, sorry, organized, did the initial route for the Trans-America Trail. Um, he's in Mississippi, uh, just a couple of states away. So I called him and told him what I was trying to do. And he said, well, I've got a couple of loops in the Mississippi area. And you could use the Trans-America Trail, which runs literally runs 20 miles away from my back door. You could use the Trans-America Trail to get to it do the loop and then ride back it'd be about a thousand miles i was like well okay that will get us that'll be a good first event mm-hmm. um and so that's what we did i bought the maps off sam bought because he has the roll charts bought the roll charts off him for every everybody that did it we ended up with seven of us ride the first vintage 1000 um about 50 percent i knew that, and others were friends of friends or just i mean one guy heard about it on the sideburn magazine blog um and came he was from australia and he was over here on vacation with his wife and he left his wife in portland and flew his chattanooga i lent him a bike and he rode the ride rode the ride (laughs) (laughs) honey i'll be back (laughs) yeah i mean mark awesome guy um um so that's how it started and, and that to give you a bit of idea how it went um so we left on a, I think we did it on a, a Tuesday, Tuesday through Saturday. And I picked Mark, the Australian guy, I picked him up from the airport on Saturday or Sunday. And he came and I had a Suzuki DS uh, 350, I think, mm-hmm. a kind of enduro bike, mid 70s, that he was going to ride. Originally, I was going to ride it because my Triumph the top end had blown on it and i was like oh, i'll ride that suzuki instead i just picked it up for like 400 bucks it'll work and so he, i gave him the suzuki and i've been waiting my triumph top ends completely off it um been waiting on piston rings for it they kept arriving they kept being broken and so they turned up on saturday afternoon rebuilt the top end no they turned up on sorry yeah we did leave on tuesday they turned up on monday afternoon i rebuilt the top end of the triumph that afternoon put the bike back together rode it around the test rode it around the parking lot and was like okay we're good and then, <laughs> it'll break in on the way no worries yeah, yeah it'll be fine you know yeah. it'll be fine so nothing could go wrong good. here like the, the other the other idea around the event was that and still is is that you have to carry everything on your bike so we camp out every night and you have to carry your, so you have to carry your tent, your sleeping bag, all that kind of stuff. You don't have to carry food, but if you need some spare parts or tools, you have to carry all that stuff. So, and then the first year we had uh, my wife, Jamie and Chastin's wife, Lauren rode in a pickup truck and then kind of followed behind us just in case something went wrong. Um, which it did, of course. <laughs> um, so we, um, the Tuesday comes, like nobody's had a great deal of sleep, and but we were all feeling good about it. Chastin and Lauren had arrived on, on Sunday evening, and um, it was all good. So on Tuesday morning, everybody arrived at my shop, which was where we were leaving from. 
Um, and so like I say, there were seven of us, uh, and we all left. We, so we get to the shop, one guy's missing and call him up. I know the guy and I call him up and he's like, uh, just had some trouble, just kind of broke down on the way to the shop, had to come back, try and fix the bike. So we're like, all right, well, we'll wait. <laughs> so this is, a, you know, before we've been started, one guy's broken down. Yeah. Um, you can probably tell where this is going, but um, we waited and it was pouring down with rain. I mean, like lashing down really bad. And um, we're like, oh, we'll, we'll just wait. We'll wait for, you know, we'll wait till like 10, 10 Anyway, we get to that point, still hasn't got it sorted. So like, okay, we'll have to leave, try and meet us en route. You know, you can catch us up. We'll be taking back roads and stuff. So that's what we do. So we leave in absolute downpour. And um, eight miles in, there was a guy on a Suzuki two-stroke 125. Um, and eight miles in, his transmission literally exploded. <laughs> like second gear, every, I don't know how that, that Suzuki has got like 14 horsepower, if that. And he stripped, <laughs> he, he stripped almost every tooth off second gear. I have no idea how he even did it. Talent. Yeah, there's a skill. And so um, that's kind of how it went. You know, finally the rain kind of dried up. And the first day we got going and Sam's route, the Transamerica Trail, is very turn heavy. So like the road, we use the three and a half inch wide road book, road ch- roll chart holders. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've just got a tulip diagram on them and, uh, you know, a turn left onto Francis street or something like that. And, um, so we use those and Sam's the Transamerica trail, generally speaking, you can only get half a day into one of those. Um, so they're pretty turn heavy and, you know, none of us have ever run off a roll chart either. So the initial idea, I think when I thought about the, the event was that we'd all just go and be on our own or ride in pairs or whatever you felt comfortable with. You know, mm-hmm. if you were faster, you could go off and it was, it was not meant to be a race, but there was, mm-hmm. there's always a competition element in everything anybody does. Right. So, uh, correct. <laughs> Get a bunch of bikes yeah, I mean, together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A bunch, of, a bunch of bikes and a bunch of guys or girls or whatever. You just, you know, it's, there's going to be somebody who wants to be in camp first well, the first day was just such a mess. I mean, it didn't end at that eight miles. It was, you know, Nathan on a two-stroke again, 250 Kawasaki. There was one point where he couldn't get from one end of the road to the other without the ignition crapping out on it. Um, and, uh, you know, we wanted this, the spirit was and the spirit still is that we want everybody to finish the day, you know, and everybody to finish the thousand miles. So we just kept, like, we'd fix it and get back on the road, just break again. Eventually, he gets on the trailer. Long story short, we arrive in camp that night at about 10.30, I think it was. Right. Um, and then, so that's with five bikes out of the seven. The next day, everything's going okay. Um, we stumble we're going along, we've just gassed up and we come through this small area and there's a house on the right and there's a bridge, like a concrete culvert that's been under construction. Mm-hmm. And it's not a very big creek that, to go through. And there's two guys there on bikes. There's a guy on a 
BMW GS, like the big one, and uh, KTM. I don't know what KTM was. Again, it was a big one, probably the biggest they did at the time. And all the gear on, and we're there on these ratty old bikes. All of them, all of them apart from one, was under $1,000. That meant buying it and getting it ready. Um, <laughs> so we're all there, like, you know, jeans and T-shirt, just whatever. And there, this guy, the guy in the BMW is walking back and he's, he's just shaking his head like he can't get through it. And I'm like, oh, we'd probably get through this. So I'm leading us and I go up to this culvert and it, where it breaks off, I just kind of hop off the end of it into the creek, drive through the creek. I'm like, no big deal. you know. <laughs> and everybody follows me. And there's me, Mark, the Australian guy, and Chastin are the first three. And I just get through the creek and I look back, and it's probably 20 feet wide or something. I look back, and Chastin's bike is on fire. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> and it, yeah, and he's he's in the he's the only person on the planet probably that's ever had his bike catch fire in a water crossing, <laughs> um, and, and it's licking. It's like the back end of it's on fire, and it, the flames are above his helmet. Oh, and and I'm like, get off the bike, and he's like, what? You what? You know? And Mark, no Mark Mark's next to him, go get off the bike. <laughs> anyway, we get off the creek. He finally realizes what's going on. Throws the bike down. It's engulfed by that point. Um, I think he, I think he grabbed his wallet and something out of his tank bag, and that was it. The whole thing went um, mm. up. And then, you know, his wife Lauren is in the truck with Jamie, and we just kind of stood there in disbelief mm-hmm. at this point. I mean, it's like what we're on day two. You know, we're two, we're two, we're essentially two bikes down already, and one bike's just caught fire and literally burnt to, to nothing. Um, so. Um, we, we, of course, we've got no signal. We're in the middle of nowhere in in, um, in Mississippi, I think. And this house is on the, you know, up on the hill next to us. And these guys, you know, are behind us with the KTM and the BMW. God knows what these guys are thinking. <laughs> and um, so Chastin goes up to the house, makes a phone call, and says to Lauren, you know, can you meet us at the end of this road? It was a dirt road we were on, and we'll meet you at the main road. So we do. He didn't want to tell what had happened. And, um, you know, he got on the back of Mark's bike and we rode out and they finally catch up. And she's like, she's looking around. She's like, where's, where's the bike? And he's like, uh, it, it burned up. And it was actually a grandpa's bike. Um, and it wasn't too sentimental to him, I don't think, but still it was like a grandpa's Honda CB 500. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was like, no, no, really what happened? And he was like, no, it, it, it burns the ground and it's just like, Oh man. So anyway, we carried on, <laughs> um, you know, the bikes are left to carry on. They went and picked up the bike and he still got it. It's hanging from the rafters in his barn. Um, but the week kind of continued on like that. Bikes would get fixed like Nathan's Kawasaki. They fixed it. He got back on the road for a bit. I think it broke again. Um, the guy whose transmission broke, he was sharing a bike with his friend who'd come on the trip ryan um who i'd never met before the trip and so they alternated days on the bike um and stuff so the week went out we didn't complete the full route in the end um for obvious reasons but uh, one the the middle day or the second last day mark from australia and myself were the only people on the road for two-thirds of it 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that day we actually beat the support truck back to camp. So um, with two of us, it really worked. But yeah. the rest of the time it didn't. And, um, you know, that first night I remember laying in the tent and turning to Jamie and being like, what have I done? You know, this is going to be the stupidest idea I've ever had. Um, but it was a great week. And my bike, actually, we got caught in a thunderstorm about 50 miles from Chattanooga on the way home. Mm-hmm. And the oil line somehow got torn on the, on the bottom of the engine and it seized the engine Ooh. 50, mi- 50 miles from home. And I'd done like 800 miles, 850 miles mm-hmm. on a bike that I'd rebuilt the day before. And, um, so it's kind of sad, but the rest of the guys, we all rode in. So I got on the back of the Suzuki that I'd lent to Mark and the other guys, everybody toed up, up on a bike and we rode into Chattanooga in the pouring rain <laughs> to finish off this trip. And, you know, I've, I'd, we get back and it, it was a good week, but it was super stressful and, um, you know, still a good time and, and, and made some lifelong friends out of it for sure. But I kind of thought, well, that's probably that, you know. Yeah. One and done. And then, yeah, one and done. Um, and then we get back and, you know, there'd been a few pictures put up on Instagram throughout the week and I'd never checked it and never had time because we, 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 we were on the road at least 12 hours a day and um, with breakdowns and all that kind of stuff. And when we got back, there's like people going pretty kind of nuts about it. Um, probably just because of everything that went on, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a ton of interest in it. So I'm like, well, you know, maybe if we're more organized, it'll be better next year, you know. Uh, so we did it again the next year and it was better. And there was 12 of us, I think. Um, and I broke down 30 miles from home <laughs> that year. Okay. Um, yeah. Making so progress. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, each year, only one person, Mark, the guy from Australia, was the only person to do all the miles the first year. And then the second year, I think it was two guys. Um, and it's got better since then. But, yeah, so that's it's a bit long-winded, long-winded answer, Victor. Um, but that's how it started. That first year was just me throwing something down on Instagram and being like, let's do it. Nice. And uh, and we did. But, yeah. Well, sometimes keeping it simple works uh, works a little better. Yeah, 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 totally. And I think that's a pretty, I mean, it's a really neat concept because the the whole vintage bike thing, um, I see that we have a uh, follower in common is a friend of mine, uh, Ng, who I met uh, through Baja Rally. And he's a really talented photographer, but he's into a lot of vintage stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, he's got his uh, uh, 100GS, that uh, the Dakar, but I don't know that he would do that, but uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll call him out on that, but it's, it's nice to see, uh, you know, the vintage bikes making how the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, can you still get the vintage bikes? Is it difficult to get vintage bikes, you know, for people that want to come out and do this? Yeah. And you know, the beauty of it is that, um, you know, we ride a lot of forest service roads and stuff like that. It's not, it's, you know, at most it's twin track. And this year, uh, sorry, 2020, we managed to squeak in a couple of events. Mm-hmm. 
with COVID, just being super cautious and took every prevention going and, and um, everybody wore a mask and all that kind of stuff. But last year, I did throw in some more difficult stuff just to test people because people were getting more prepared and they were on better bikes. Um, but the beauty of it is you can buy a road going vintage bike at Honda CB 350, for example, mm-hmm. um, which was designed for the road, throw some knobby tires on it and it's pretty much good enough. Okay. Um, you know, is it as comfortable as a Yamaha XT 500, which is essentially the first enduro bike ever made? No, of course it isn't. Um, but it'll get the job done, you know? Um, and there's loads, they made a gazillion of those bikes. So, uh, the most, you know, and it's funny because since we started doing it in 2015, you could, you know, like I say, we were all under a thousand bucks. Um, you know, you could buy bikes relatively cheap then. It was kind of in the middle of the cafe racer era, um, which definitely bumped the prices of vintage bikes up. Um, but you can still buy a bike pretty cheap and you still can, you know, even for an XT 500, which is one of the more popular bikes or an XL Honda 500, mm-hmm. you know, you 2,500 bucks, Okay. you know, for, for a really good one. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's guys that do it a lot cheaper, but, yeah, so they're around, and vintage enduro stuff seems to have got more popular because the prices have definitely gone up on that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, um, I know there's a multitude of people that come on our rides every year that don't have a vintage bike when they sign up and they go and buy one for it. <laughs> I don't, um, I don't care what I'm riding. I'm doing this. <laughs> yes, yeah, like I'm, I'll do. It. I'll I'll find something, you know, and it's. Um, and even some people sign up with one bike and the upgrade or, or whatever, you know, but yeah, it's like every year we get at least a few people that have never even ridden a vintage bike. And they're like, I'd, I just want to get involved in this. It looks like a really good time. And they just go out and buy something. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely accessible. I feel like anyway, yeah. um, you know, and, um, yeah, and reasonably priced. I mean, you don't have to have all the gear. You have to have something. You know, you have to have something to carry your luggage with, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a roll chart holder is thirty dollars. Um, you know, it's 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 super easy to get into. Yeah, well, and it's super basic. I mean, we compare it to the rally bikes of now. You know, or you think, or just even anything. Like if you were going to do the same ride uh, on a newer bike, you know, all of the the equipment and all that stuff. It just the prices start jumping exponentially. So yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and then it, um, it it seems like uh, have you noticed that like they, you know, you you look for a particular bike and that's uh, vintage wise, and then a few months later, it seems like everybody else discovered that bike and it's it's bumping the price up. Have you been noticing that as well? Um. It seems like the, C- the CB500 was like that, I think, with the whole yeah. cafe racer thing. Yeah, totally. Those, I mean, yeah, the, the, the CB range for the cafe racer deal is the best looking frame. I, I guess a little bit of my background is I run a vintage bike shop and I build custom bikes as well and stuff. So nice. I've built a ton of cafe racers and all that stuff. And um, yeah, there's a better looking frame, which then bumps the price up and all that kind of stuff. You know, Hondas are, of course, famed for their reliability um, with good reason. And, um, 
Yeah, so it, like I said, I've mentioned the XT500 a couple of times, but you could buy one of those for $1,000, a good one, mm-hmm. five years ago, and now they're 25 um, and maybe a bit more. And, you know, I kind of wonder what does drive that up, um, in all honesty, because they're not a very good bike to do a hair scramble on or a vintage motocross event. I guess like the vintage motocross maybe a little bit, but because they're quite a big bike and, you know, you don't need 500 cc's for most of those things. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of wonder sometimes, and maybe people see our our thing going on and like, oh, that's cool. Maybe I'll get into it, and you know, or maybe it's just the next thing on the collector's list. You know, the guys that used to ride those things back in the 70s when they were 15, 16, and now they want one again. You know, that seems to be the trend with vintage and antique bike. Is you know, I mean, I just delivered a. Uh, Honda to a customer yesterday, um, a little XL185 that was his. He bought he bought when he was like eight or nine years old, I think, um, and has had it all his time. And it's been like a, I think his brother had it. Then maybe a cousin took it apart, and you know, I just resurrected it for him. And it's just a bit of nostalgia. So I think nostalgia drives the price as much as anything. And I think, yeah, and uh, you know when I was a kid and we were riding bikes, we were riding street bikes down green lanes in England. Just, you know, I lived in the middle in a tiny village in England and we could ride down the road to green lanes when we were, you know, 10, 11, 12, um, there was nobody around and we'd just go and ride whatever we had, you know, to usually two stroke street bikes, 50 cc's, a hundred cc's, whatever. So, um, you know, I think it's just a bit of, nostalgia that pushes the price up more than anything and you know i think our event has pushed certainly the popularity of it a little bit um nice so but yeah nice well yeah that definitely like it's cool to see i've always enjoyed the cafe racer you know look on bikes but the scrambler like when bmw came out with the urban gs the new you know the new version yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, all of those bikes is just so awesome, and it's cool. Now it it seems like, well, I don't know that I would pay all that money to take it and beat it up like that. But you know, like you're saying, it was a, uh, one of those five hundreds. Throw a little bit of money at it, a little roll chart holder. You don't have to get into the fancy electronics or anything like that, and just make sure it's solid. It sounds like yeah, be well, a winner. Yeah, uh, you know, mechanically, most of those bikes are super simple. You know, as long as the wiring's good and ignition and stuff like that you know usually they don't break mechanically um um but yes like you say that some of the modern stuff that especially the the bmw and the triumph scrambler and stuff i mean they're great looking bikes but one they're heavy i mean um and two they're expensive you know i mean both of those bikes are probably 12 13 maybe even more thousand dollars so Mm-hmm. Um, like you say, kind of reluctant to. Yeah, just go send it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, exactly. I mean, honestly, I'd do it, but um, and I'd kind of love to do. I think that's where the challenge is for me. It's like I'd love to get one of those bikes and just like take it to Baja and run the one thousand or something, just because. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think to me it's. I always look back, and one of the reasons I love vintage bikes is that I think that they are a bit of a challenge. And, um, you know, people think 
you know, we meet a lot of people along the way on this thing. They're like, oh, what are you doing? Because we, we travel in groups of five. And they're like, oh, what's going on? And you tell them and they're like, they look at you like, are you kind of not all there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it, like I say, it's kind of, the, the standard of bike has gone up, but still when people look at it, it's kind of a ragtag crew of guys uh, and girls um, that they just like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Some people are like, Oh man, how do I get information on this? And other people are like, that's stupid, yeah. you know? Um, but it's like, well, what do you think they rode in the sixties? Mm-hmm. They, they rode exactly what I'm riding right now. Like I ride a, a 66 drive 650. Um, and you know it was a street bike and it's a little bit more modified now but um essentially like even last year it was a stock suspension triumph like four inches of travel um and you know i've raced motocross on that and all sorts of stuff and it's you know we've done the la barstow vegas and and all that kind of stuff and it's harder but you know, at times it's more rewarding, um, but it is definitely fun to get on a on a, on a modern bike um, and do some stuff as well. But yeah, it's like people, yeah. like you said, you know, people look at you. I, I, growing up racing Baja, it was always the same thing in the in the one in the uh, class eleven Baja bugs. You know, just yeah. stock Baja bugs, and you're like, uh, oh, how do they even? Why would you even? Okay, they must be crazy. So it doesn't make any sense, does yeah. it? <laughs> Why would you sign up for this? Why would you put yourself through that? Because, I mean, that's the other thing, too. I mean, most most modern bikes, you can get them up 75, 80 fairly quickly and sustainably. But I feel like these bikes, the speeds were slower back when they were around. So I don't know that yeah. they're in a hurry. And then horsepower is just not there, even if it is a 500cc bike, you know. Yeah, but, you know... I think anybody would get on some of those bikes and go, oh, this got a decent amount of power. Mm-hmm. But then you get on like a Husky 701 or something like that, and you're like, oh. No, this doesn't oh, have power. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. This is, <laughs> was like, this is different, you know. Yeah. Um, but, nice. yeah. Uh, oh. So I see now. So this started in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yeah, that was uh-huh. that was the first one. But then I'm looking on the website here, and, and you guys are doing one out of Flagstaff as well. Yeah, so um, so for the first few years, we just did um, for the first couple of years, we went east, uh, sorry, west. We went into Mississippi and Tennessee and, and back round, mm-hmm. and then and we used Sam's tat route for both of those because okay. after the first year we didn't really do it all so i was like well let's try and do it next year so we did that and then after that i was like no i want to make my own route so then i developed the whole route on my own and did the roll chart and all that kind of stuff nice. um and then so then we and we ride east like georgia north georgia uh north carolina and tennessee i mean it's it's amazing riding um so we, we did that and then it got to the point where, and we limited the numbers to 20, around 20 people mm-hmm. just to manage it, you know, and, um, it's gotten to the point a couple of years ago where we were selling out really quick. And I said to my wife, Jamie, I was like, maybe we should do another one, you know, kind of in the spring or something. So we did, we rode 
we went down to Florida and back. We went down to the Gulf Coast and back um, in 2019. And then last year, we were going to do the same kind of thing again, but because COVID had just hit and we didn't know anything about it at all, we cancelled it. Um, and then I really wanted to do this ride out west. And we, if you look at the – and I kind of hate to say this, but if you look at the statistics from social media – a lot of interest in the ride comes from out west mm-hmm. um and so i wanted to do a ride out west for that reason i mean even if it was just to give people the opportunity to do it and also i wanted to do it you know the whole reason i even started this ride was because i wanted to do it um and so i'd love to do something in every state where it's worth it eventually you know what i mean mm-hmm. um so I've wanted to ride in Arizona for a long time. I was like, all right, we're going to do Arizona. Maybe we dip into New Mexico, but ended up the route I developed was just in Arizona. Um, And two weeks ago, uh, national parks in Arizona closed a few of our campgrounds until June 1st and the rides in at the end of May. Um, So we're actually going to Utah. Okay. so I quickly, over a week, developed a rough route. Enough to not, I'd work, book some campgrounds and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, we're going to Utah in May. Um, and unfortunately, a couple of people couldn't make it, but we filled their spots, and they'll probably join us next year. We'll do Arizona when everything's opened up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it was really just an ex- an expansion of – the ride because I wanted to keep heading out west, but people also love riding in the North Carolina, Carolina mountains. Mm-hmm. You know, it's and we get we get quite a few return riders, but also new people. It's it's such a picturesque area, and and the the riding is just fantastic. So I would hate to go away from that area. So we're kind of trying to do one locally to us in the southeast, and then one somewhere else in the country. Um, you know, obviously, logistically for us, that is a bit of a headache, but um, I feel like it's worth it. You know, I want to ride in those places and I want to ride vintage bikes in those places. So we're just kind of making it work. Yeah. Well, and I've, uh, if you've been to Overland Expo, that was my first experience in Flagstaff. And like you said, I mean, it's like super picturesque. Like we had some recommendations and went out into the hills. Uh, and check some of the stuff out and some of those dirt roads out there. I mean, yeah, I'm on a vintage bike, you know, no problem. I mean, I, I did it in a standard SUV, nothing fancy. And yeah, it's just so much to see. And then, I mean, yeah. it is also like out, out West. This is like off road and all that stuff. I mean, there's just, there are bikes everywhere for, that do that kind of stuff. So I, you know, I'm not too surprised to hear that there's uh there's in, like a lot of interest on this side, but I'm absolutely stoked that, you're doing something like that out here. Now I'm, now I'm thinking like, okay, as soon as this is over, I'm heading to Craigslist. So just like last <laughs> yeah, week, <definitely>, just like <laughs> last week's podcast, <laughs> this one just turned expensive too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's kind of infectious. I love it. Like, um, yeah. yeah um, we'd love to have you on the ride as well. Yeah. No. And, and you know, it's like you said, it's like the bikes are so simple. Now, honestly, like, I mean, I, I have my 790 and I, I am depending on that thing to stay together out in the yeah. middle of nowhere. 
because I know nothing of the computers and the fuel injection systems and stuff. Like I know enough to get by. I'm dangerous. I could, I'm sure I could ruin some parts, but yeah. on these older bikes, it's like, it's cool. Cause it's just, you know, does it got spark. Uh huh. Does it have fuel? Uh huh. Does it have air? Uh huh. Okay. What's the problem? Yeah. 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 Why isn't it running? Why isn't it running? <laughs> You've it checked. It me things, but it still isn't running. Yeah. <laughs> the motor still spins freely. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, not What's stuck. going on? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. I mean, they are. And and so the way we run it as well, um, the, and this happens, this happens every year uh, again, is that, there's people that could turn up and, you know, last year I'll give you one example, I won't name him, but um, he started riding because of COVID. He was off work and worked overseas, came back and um, just decided, oh, I'm going to buy an old motorcycle and fix it up and never ridden, never done anything. So this is three months before the ride. Somehow, I don't even know how, hears about the ride, emails us, hey, can I come? I was like, yeah, of course you can. And um, so he turns up, turns up at our house, stays at our house the night before, and um, great guy. He's only, his riding experience is three months, mainly on the road. <laughs> Uh-oh. And, yeah, oh, man, he did great. And, um, you know, had a Honda CL3, CL350, um, which is pretty decent, and... You know, he'd taken notes of everything we told him to do with regards to packing and all that kind of stuff, and because that's a major issue. And um, had a great week, and he had some, he had a couple of falls. I'm not gonna lie to you, and his bike broke a fair few times, but we always fixed it. And um, you know, the last day, last day, that thing was. I mean, the last afternoon, I'd wire. I mean, the last afternoon, I'd wired it so to stop it, you basically ground the wire to the handlebars. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it, then it started raining. It started kind of electrocuting him a little bit. But, yeah, you know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, it's just twelve volts. What it is? It's just another story. You know? Yeah. And um, but just there's just an example. Though. He had he had no mechanical experience at all, and when his bike broke, he really, you know, it kind of had a rough idea what it might be, but most of the time it wasn't that because it could be something else. You know, most yeah. of the time when something stops, it could be, like you said, it could be three things. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way we – well, so you get – I don't know if it's 50-50 or not, but it's probably close. You get people that know what they're doing and people have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, and maybe they've ridden for 20 years, but they still don't know how to fix a bike, and that's just the way it is. That's what keeps me in business day to day. But um, – yeah, so but there's other riders on the on on the ride that do know what they're doing, and um, as soon as somebody breaks down, honestly, it's a race to see who gets their tools out first. It's amazing that awesome. the people that come on this ride are just fantastic, uh, and it's the real reason we do it every year. It's, it's what makes the ride for me. It's just people's attitude is just amazing, and. Um, you know, everybody wants everybody to succeed and they'll do whatever they can. And, you know, it's it's great to see. And if nobody can fix it, I always run with the last group that's on the, on the roll chart. I leave camp last, I get in last. And, um, you know, if another group passes another, I'll stop with that group. And usually I can fix it. So um, 
that's the way we run it. And if it can't be fixed, we have a support vehicle that that follows roughly close to the trail or close enough to come in and grab you if they need to. Um, you know, and more often than not, we'll be able to fix it at camp with something that they can pick up on the road parts-wise, or maybe we just need a couple of hours to fix it, mm-hmm. um, which you really don't have on the trail because with everything that's going on, breakages and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, an average day is probably 10 hours in the saddle. Um, so we try and if it's going to take more than an hour to fix it, we try and get into camp. But if it's going to take like an hour and 20, we'll, we'll still probably do it to be honest. But, um, but yeah, just going back to it, you don't need like, if you don't know how a bike works at all and you've only ever ridden modern bikes and you want to pick up a old bike and, you know, you can spend two, three thousand dollars and get a really nice bike. It probably will have some kind of issue on this ride, but we'll somebody will fix it for you. Yeah, you well, know, and it won't be an issue. And that that's kind of cool to see because I mean I, I see that uh, in in rally in general. You know, it, it's yes, it's uh, competitive, and yeah, they're keeping time, but uh, you know, every everybody's up for helping everybody you know, or at least checking in on them and, and making sure that they're okay or whatever, you know, so quick parts and stuff like that. So it's kind of a whole different thing. Like, I don't think if you're not, uh, in the motors, in the motorcycle culture, uh, of, of riding and, and hanging out with the guys or, or gals or whatever it is, you know, in, in groups, yeah. I don't think you'll, you'll understand that, you know, that kind of thing. It's like every, it's, it's just, it's like how everybody waves, you know, at each other on a motorcycle. Yeah. Except yeah. some of the Harley guys. Some of the Harley yeah, guys are too cool for school. Yeah. You know, they don't want to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a little very quick story. But I've got a couple of friends that ride. I met this. I met one of them. Really, one of them is a friend, and the other one's a friend of a friend kind of thing. We we're acquaintances. But we met because of Triumphs. He had a, a Triumph that his dad owned. Well, I think he bought it brand new, and he finally got it um, about you know seven or eight years ago. And we met because of that. I was riding Triumphs, he was riding Triumphs. And then we started riding dirt together and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll go past Harley guys and do like a proper full-on, not like the Bray Wave thing, they'll do a prop-on full-on wave. Like super enthusiastic, like hand in the air. like just, <laughs> And it's it's so hilarious. But you know what? Harley guys will just wave the same way back. It's, it's so good. It, it, it is so, it's so good. It cracks me up every time I see him do it. But, um, yeah, they just do it on purpose because otherwise, like, they've just completely ignored. But, um, yeah, it's it's super funny. But um, and I used to ride Harleys as well. So, like, um, in fact, my wife still got one. I don't have one anymore. But, um yeah, um, and I wouldn't rule one out again, but I'm not certainly. It's a different culture, um, yeah. and I think the dual sport culture in in overall is amazing. To be honest, it is. Um, you know, it really is. Uh, you you stop on the trail, and you, if you see somebody, you stop and have a chat or whatever, and um, it's it's totally different. And it's what I mean. I don't. I, I did one road ride, one dedicated road ride last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. Um, I just, you know, I think after riding dual sport and off-road and stuff, it's just not that interesting to me anymore. But it's just the culture thing as well. It's just, you know, I mean, you, you'll you know, that's the 790, I mean, you can ride on the highway or wherever with that thing, right? So you can, you know, you drive past a dirt road, you're like, oh, what's down there? <laughs> yeah. You just go and have a look. I mean, yeah. perfect. 
And I, you know, and I, I agree with you. It was when I were, I started working at uh, San Diego BMW motorcycles over here and, uh, you know, I had seen it and, and I had fallen into that groove like, oh, yeah, look, here's another guy on a GS on his way to Starbucks in full yeah. armor. And <laughs> and then once, you know, you start working there, you start working and what you do, you're in the, in the motorcycle industry, you work on, on vintage bikes, you start meeting more people and you start realizing how big and how different the culture is uh, it, with it. And, and and particularly in adventure riders, you know, you could be out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, oh, we've done a couple of rides in Baja where that happens, you know, usually we were riding the typical power sports schedule, right? Sunday, Mondays. And yeah. so there's nobody out there Monday oh, yeah. and, and all of a sudden you run across somebody and it's like, you're talking to them like you've known them forever and you're t- where they came from and finding all of this stuff. So yeah, for, I, I think, you know, like we kind of mentioned earlier, there's a lot, a lot of people that aren't in, into motorcycles and, and into that wouldn't really realize, realize, how big of a culture and how big of a I don't want to use the word cult because then that gets classified as something else but yeah but you know it, it it's got this like following and this camaraderie between people and so doing events like this I mean this is like everybody should be signing up to do something like this you know because it's old school and it's cool and it's not complicated you know in a time no. where everything is complicated yeah it's just it's just fun you know yeah. and uh, like especially you know you can look at the world and think oh god you know we're just it's just doom and gloom especially if you read the, if you watch the news or read the news but you know the thing for motorcycles for me full stop is just they are fun yeah. and riding them is fun and you know most of the people you meet that ride them or whatever you know you can have a good chat and it's it, you've got that in common at least and the feeling of riding you know i um I lived in Australia for a while and surfed a lot there. And, uh, you know, there's a phrase, only a surfer knows a feeling. Um, and it's, I liken it to riding motorcycles. It's almost the same. It's just, you know, you're in your own head space and just, just fantastic. Uh, and, and everybody knows what that feels like. He rides a motorcycle. Yeah. E- even if they rode one 30 years ago and stopped because they had a family or blah, 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 mm-hmm. they still remember it. You know, some people say it's like freedom and, you know, yeah, it's, it's just, I love it. Yeah. And it's very, um, it's very different. You can, and I think it might've been like what you saw in, like in, in road riding. It's like when you go and ride motorcycles on the road, um, you know, obviously it's one feeling in the dirt, in the back country, it's another, but most of us, you know, we drive a vehicle if you're, you know, driving nine to five you know, to and from work or whatever it is, and you only ride on the weekends, that same exact road is completely different on a motorcycle than it is in the car. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean, you, you, it's just, it's a whole, like you said, it's a whole nother world. You're in your own headspace. You're somewhere completely different uh, when it, when it comes to being on the motorcycle itself. So, you know, yeah, more yeah, people should ride, <laughs> but yeah, well, I think if everybody rode, they'd be better drivers as well. Yeah, you know, it, admittedly, my you know my parents when they uh, once I started riding and, and got into adventure bikes, my parents were like, you know, I never really realized how many people uh, ride those kind of bikes, and and now I notice them a lot more, which means I'm paying more attention to motorcyclists. Yeah, that's cool. And, and I'm like, well, yeah, I, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> 
because <laughs> you know we all yeah if you ride a motorcycle you're gonna have a close call it's just part of it and it's all about how you you know shake it off but but man that is yeah yeah totally so one of the things i mean you're doing roll charts now you're you're kind of doing this have you thought about getting into like something like baja rally or sonora rally or one of the more i want to say competitive but it's still an adventure even though there is timing have you thought about doing something like that so the answer is yes absolutely (laughs) um about five years ago i heard of the mexican mexican 1000 menorah Mm -hmm. um and i was like oh god i've got to do this and um started building a bike and um Never did enter, and honestly, it would have been a real struggle just financially, et cetera, et cetera, but um, ended up uh, breaking my knee flat track racing mm. <laughs> and um, ended up having an operation the same week as the one, there's a Nora 1000. And ever since then, I've been like, oh, every year, you know, it comes around every year. I'm like, oh, man, I, I still want to do it. I really want to do it. And, you know, I think the long game, like, and it's come from, I guess, from our own event. I love riding multiple days. Um, And I'm super competitive. Always have been into sports, played sports, all sorts of sports throughout my childhood to my early 20s. Um, And so rallying, it's like, yeah. So the Nora 1000, last year, you know, I was speaking to my wife. I was like, you know, I really want to do the Mexican 1000 and she is super supportive of everything I do. Um, anybody knows me, I think that's obvious. Um, and she says, well, let's do it. Like let's put the money aside and, and do all that stuff. So we did it and I entered for this year and, um, I just deferred my entry a couple of weeks ago to next year because it's just still too up in the air for me. Um, they're not sure about the route. Um, you got to have code tests and all that stuff. And I totally understand everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's like if I lived if I lived in San Diego, I'd just I'd go. Mm-hmm. But because I have to travel across the country and do it, it's just, it's a huge time commitment. Um, and I don't want to get there and be positive <laughs> test positive COVID. You know, I've I've come this far without doing it. I just thought, you know, I'm just going to defer it. Yeah. Um, and do it next year, which, you know, it was a tough decision, but at the same time I was like, you know, you've waited long, you've waited this long, just wait and do it right. You know? So, um, yeah, the answer to that is yes. And then, so I've got a Honda XL 600 and 1983 that I was going to ride that on. Nice. Um, which I've put uh, the European Dakar tank from the same period on. Um, basically it's a 1983 Dakar replica. Um, with some better lights. Um, awesome. So, yeah, I super, uh, and I've done, I've done a load of miles on that bike. I traded, I built a set of wheels for a guy in trade for it. So I've got about 600 bucks in it. But I did 6,000 miles, dual sport miles on it a couple of years ago, just in one year and just like, love it. I've done all sorts of stuff on it. And so I wanted to do that race on it and built it out the way I wanted it with a gas tank and all that kind of stuff. And, so I'm going to do that next year, but I also like committing to that really came from 
um, I watched, um, have you heard of Alex Honnold, the rock climber? He uh, did the free, he did El Capitan like without rope. Yes. Um, I yeah, knew the name um, sounded familiar. I remember, yeah. I remember yeah, that. So, yeah, so he did a, there's a movie about him doing that and he talks about committing to doing it essentially. And he'd been thinking about climbing El Capitan free, free solo for like six years or something. Mm-hmm. But he committed to it and he said, you know, I may never ever do it, but if I don't commit to it now, I'll never do it. It's guaranteed I'll never do it. So, you know, he was practicing routes and doing all sorts of stuff and free soloing some of it. And I watched that and I was like, oh, I need to just apply this to the Mexican 1000 so I actually do it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I committed to getting fitter. I put the money away. I did, you know, I started building the bike. I did everything I could. And even if I didn't do it, like I'm not going to do it, I'm still prepared, you know? Mm-hmm. So now I feel like, you know, um, Baja is almost a done deal in my mind. Like I'm going to do it. I want to move on to the next thing. <laughs> so the next thing for me was to look at, I guess, essentially look at my bucket list, which I don't really have one, but the top of the bucket list, if you'd have asked me for the last 10 years would have been Dakar. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially my mindset now is what do I need to do to get to Dakar? Um, and so for me, it's a few things. One is fitness mm-hmm. Two, it, two is riding time, of course, you know, skill level, which I'm reasonably decent. Um, and, uh, you know, the third is of course, uh, well, you've got the, the, the seat time in a bike, but you also need the rally experience. Mm-hmm. You can't just go, I mean, I don't physically think you can actually just register for Dakar unless you've done like the Sonora or something like that anyway, or the Andalusian rally. You have to do a qualifying rally. I think that's the way it is. <clears throat> yeah. You, the, yeah. They want, they want to know that you know your way around a road book. Yeah, exactly. I think on yeah. a car, you can just jump in a car and do it on a bike. They won't let you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially what I'd like to do next year, I'm already booked in for the Mexican. I'd like to try and couple that with maybe the Sonora rally. Mm-hmm. Um, or the Baja, and then over the next couple of years, try and get as much proper rally experience on a proper bike, um, and then focus on, you know, I guess the monetary side of doing Dakar, yeah. um, you know, which is huge. But, um, you know, so for me, like the answer is yes, absolutely. I'm a super competitive person by nature, and I love riding bikes. I love the challenge of riding bikes multiple days. Um, like I say, it's just a, it's an adventure as well, isn't it? It's even yeah. the Dakar to me is the ultimate adventure, especially when you look at the early days. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what you guys are doing with the Vintage One Thousand. I mean, that's not far from you know the the roots of the Dakar. You know, it isn't. It isn't really. Yeah. So enough that. That first year was about as catastrophic as ours for this year. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, and it's, uh, well, I mean, yeah, in talking, you know, like uh, a couple episodes ago, a few episodes ago, in talking to Skyler, uh, Skyler Howes and his feet, yeah. 
and with his attempts at the Dakar and, and, you know, and the commitment and doing all this stuff. I mean, it, you know, it's like it, 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 it can be done. You just, you know, you play the right cards and, and practice and practice and practice. I mean, that's the only thing. Um, it, it's a very common theme, you know, in this, cause it's, I, you know, I don't know if you ever saw the the video with uh, Ricky Brabeck. No, that that clip where they say, you know, it's like texting and and writing at a hundred miles an hour. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it is definitely a challenge, but uh, it is. Um, but that's really, and I think you said it before on a podcast. That is super enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, the navigation side of it, and I guess that's the other thing that really attracts me to the rally is the navigation and just. Mm-hmm from doing the roll charts on the, on the vintage stuff. Um, to me, it's one of the best bits of the ride. And, um, yeah, you could do the same thing with a GPS, but it wouldn't be anywhere near as fun. I mean, you probably know yourself that 10 people can go out with the same roll chart and five people will get there with no issues. And the other five will get lost in all different places. Yeah. No, exactly. And it's, it is what it is, but, um, yeah, for me, like, and I, the reason I know about your podcast is because I saw um, um, the guy from Rally, Rally Motor Shop, I can't remember his name, um, uh, was on, on your podcast, and yeah. I follow him because I bought one of his navigation systems from my XL for the Mexican. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Mackie Glade, um, yeah, that's it, yeah. Um, but, yeah, to me, uh you definitely need something on the handlebars that scrolls the roll chart at that speed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, but you know, um, yeah, I kind of, so I had talked to this about, you know, obviously we talked to him about it and, and having a motorized book and you, and you guys are doing it with manual advanced roll charts. Yeah. My, my personal, you know, if I ever entered a, a rally, um, it wouldn't be to be competitive. It would be just simply for the adventure. Yeah. You know, and, and do you really need a motorized advance? You know, could you get away with, you know, knowing if, Hey, but I'm, I'm not here to be competitive. I'm just here to say I completed the, and I didn't get too lost, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, no, uh, I I think you totally, you totally could. I mean, um, you know, even the, the Mexican 1000, if I wasn't, if I wasn't going to want to win it, Okay. which I will. Because yeah, um, I was going to say, it's being competitive, yeah. We're not on the same wavelength know, there. <laughs> it's just in my nature that I will, yeah. you know, not want to be last. So mm-hmm. um, the if it wasn't for that, you could totally do a manual uh, thing and the cost difference is, you know, $1,000 at least. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. So, and it's it, it can be mounted to any bike as well. So, that was the beauty of the Mexican for me. It's just like, oh, this will be a great adventure. And then, you know, as the years have gone on, like I'm just like, oh, I'd love to go and actually really perform well on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, to get into rallies and roll charts, I mean, it's really even even if you do it properly with with a proper tower and stuff, it's not that expensive compared to compared to other motorsports. I mean, it's a drop in the ocean. Yeah, true. And, and it's different, even if you did, you know, you go all in, you get the tower, you get everything and you go, so if you, the bikes generally, I I feel like last longer because you're not just, 
you're not beating them up. It's not the sprint race that it is everywhere else. And, you know, I, I, I feel like the equipment, it's not as hard on the equipment uh, lengthwise. I mean, if you run a full season of Baja, you're putting, you know, 3,000 miles on a bike at race speeds where, you know, if you're going to do a rally, as long as it's not the Dakar, you know, you're you're going to put, yeah. you know, whatever it is, you know, it's 1,000 miles or 1,500 miles or whatever it is, and then that's it. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it's an investment, but I think it's uh, I I feel like it's the future as far as you know when it comes to competitive events. Eventually, the BLM out here, Bureau of Land Management, is is going to get tired of of allowing permits for sprint races and stuff like that, and they're going to have to figure out another way of doing it. And unfortunately, yeah, that's probably inevitable. And you, you're the, the other thing about rally is that, like compared to something like motocross, where you are probably wringing the bike's neck for, you know, twenty minutes at a time, you know, most people aren't good enough to wring a rally bike's neck, yeah, for for that long. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> um, that's for sure. Especially a modern four fifty or God forbid, like a KTM rally bike or something like that. I mean, wow. Yeah, what you I know, mean. The, <laughs> You the, know uh, the hell that those bikes have to go through. You know, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, you see them. I mean, if you've ever seen any of the top ten riders, top fifteen riders at Dakar, they're not concerned with wringing the bike's neck at all. No. I mean, they just they're in it. And but for the most, you know, like the most part, you know, uh, with Skyler, like he was talking about, uh, one of the one of the members, one of the team members on the BAS Dakar team. You know, he's he's just there to finish and just, you know, was the last one into the bivouac every night and, and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, you're going to be a lot less harder on the equipment to a certain extent because, you know, if you've ridden bikes for a while, sometimes you know that hitting the brakes isn't the best thing. Sometimes you yeah. do need to get on it. But, it you know, it. I guess in summary of it is, is that there's such a broad range in rally. You don't have to be a sprint racer if you want to go out and have fun. You know, some of these Baja races are absolutely torture if you don't like. They're just so rough and beat up and just absolutely over the top that if you're just somebody that wants to go trail ride the thing and go and hang out, it, you're just going to be miserable the entire day. Yeah, I think it's yeah, it's totally different. It's a totally different attitude, isn't it? Like, um, I feel like. Especially, it seems like, you know, and I've been following Dakar for a number of years now, but everybody that you ask who races that, they just want to finish primarily. Number one goal is to finish. And then secondary, it's what place you come in, right? So, whereas I feel like Baja, it's just, I mean, it's just all out, go for it, and... uh like you say, I, I feel like and we went and watched the Baja a couple of years ago, um, which was another step on like, it was like, okay, if I want to race down there, maybe I should actually go there, you know? Mm-hmm. So we did. We went and we watched the race and um, it was great. But I'm sure they're running the same roads most of the time. So those roads are probably just rutted and just, oh, man. they. I mean, we were, I think we were at mile 160 or something or just on the coast there and... God, some of the cars that came through were just ruined already. Yeah. 
<laughs> they, you know, it, when they open for pre so that's you know the the one main thing or one of the big things is that with with those races is yeah you have pre running, so it's open for practice. A week yeah. now lately it's a week before, uh, or two weeks before, and the guys that go and practice will do three, four, five laps in a vehicle that's about seventy five percent as. Uh, capable as their actual race trucks and race cars. So they beat up, it gets beat up for two weeks and then now you've got the race and now it's even more beat up by the time you get there if you're in the lower classes or, you know, if you're falling behind or, or whatever it may be. Yeah. So, so like this, I mean, and anybody less like they, uh, there's an acronym for score, uh, same clapped out road every time. And, okay. and, and I mean, it's, I hate to say, it, but it's true. But there's only also so many roads that you can go, and then land use permits, yeah. and 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 all of the stuff that you've got to go through to legally be able to put on an event. It does kind of limit it. So, yeah, you know, totally. So I think that like this, you know, I mean, could you could you literally organize a Baja style race on the roads that you're doing onto on the Vintage One Thousand or the Five Hundred? I mean, I don't think so, right? I mean, these are like kind no, of like public no. roads. They're all public roads. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, when I started looking into it, I was like, I don't want to even start getting into talking to landowners or anything like that. Um, so it's all public roadway, and it's usually kind of 70%, 60 to 70% off-road or mm -hmm. dirt, dirt roads, gravel roads or whatever. And it's funny because they change from year in, but year in, year out, because – you know, some years they'll they'll go in and regrade them, and it's like, oh, this road used to be awesome, and now it's just a really nice gravel road, you know. And then, and then there's other roads that just every year just get worse and worse and worse, and it's just like, oh, I can't wait to go next year, you know, yeah. uh, and and see what it's like. And you turn up, and it's just they've regraded it. But um, yeah, you know, it would be it would be awesome to run some kind of race around here. Um, but well, I, you know, I, I really like what you're doing though. I mean, I think that that's kind of the way to, to, to grow it and do it. And, um, I've been toying with that idea out here. It's like, well, there's all these adventure bikes. There's all these things out, you know, and pretty much you need a license plate out here. If you want to go anywhere in the dirt, which is completely yep. weird. Um, but you know, I I think you got the recipe, you know, and especially if it's been successful with the pre eighty bikes, you know, maybe that maybe it's uh going to the nineties or something like that, or you know, nothing nothing newer than a ninety or eighty yeah, eighty nine yeah. and a half. Well, I don't know. And you know, when I kind of reached out to you, um, I kind of got the gist from you, from what you've been saying that you were interested in trying to do that kind of stuff. And I guess when I reached out, I wasn't really necessarily saying. Hey, do you want me to come on the podcast? It was more of a, I'd like to talk to you about what you are thinking in that regard. Um, because I've been thinking the same kind of thing. And it's like, and I think you've, you've definitely touched on it a few times. It's like you can ride a road a hundred times. Mm -hmm. You know, you can ride a route a hundred times. And then if you roll chart it or road book it and, and then follow it, it's totally different. Yeah. It's a totally different experience. And I've been toying with the idea of, um, 
you know, just doing some road book rallies, mm-hmm. you know, not timed or anything, but everybody can go out on their own or whatever and just follow the road book. And there's a destination at the end of the day and there is a campground or whatever. I don't know, but you know, kind of run it the same way we do it, but it's just open to anybody. Um, and, and I think it would be a good event. It's hard to know because I don't know, I don't actually know that many people that ride modern, like modern dual sport stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, me and a few friends do. Um, but, you know, to me, it'd be great if you had a five day event where even if we just ran the exact same route as our, our Eastern, our like Smoky Mountains Vintage 1000, mm-hmm. you'd still spend eight days in the saddle. Eight hours, sorry, not eight days. Um, a day, probably, anyway. Especially if you stopped and were like, hey, this is a nice area. Let's stop and there's a huge overview or whatever. Let's stop and take a minute or whatever. You know, you'd still have a nice full day of riding and it would be a, a great adventure because most of the people haven't ridden. Even if they ride around here for the last 10 years, they wouldn't have ridden all the roads I'm mapping out. Yeah. Um, and even the weather changes, some of them, you know, if it's raining, it's a totally different experience. So it's a, a 20 minute road into a three hour road and yeah. honestly that wouldn't and that wouldn't matter what you know we had a, a clay a clay hill climb that was probably man i don't know maybe quarter of a mile long mm-hmm. um and when i pre i pre-ride so I, I develop the route and then i pre-ride it make sure it's good and you know there's still one or two mistakes in the thousand miles but um when i pre-ride it it was like today it was you know sunshine and I just rode straight up this hill, didn't even think about it. Had a few ruts in it, and I remember in my mind thinking, oh, there's a few deep ruts in that, and they were kind of crisscrossing a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, oh, some people some people find that a little bit interesting. Yeah. And uh, we were the la- we were, I was with the last group, of course, and it ended up being two groups together because the last group caught up another group, and they broke down, and we just stopped and fixed it. It was the last day, last afternoon. Mm-hmm. As we leave where we're broken down, we're probably about five miles away from this hill. It started raining. <laughs> uh, and I don't know, you guys don't have much clay out there, I don't think, but wet clay is interesting. Yes. Uh, especially when it's a quarter mile long hill mm-hmm. <laughs> with ruts in it. Uh-huh. <laughs> it literally took three hours to get 10 guys up it. <laughs> There yeah, I'm, to- I'm talking like five people pushed on a bike, barely being able to stand up on the hill. It was so slick. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, yeah, just carnage. And, but, and just going back to the guys that come on this ride, man, just fantastic. Nobody, you know, there's a lot of very tired people, me included, after five days of riding. You see the fatigue on people's face after a couple of days. Oh, yeah. And, but, Five days of riding, you're on this hill for three hours, and nobody lost their cool. Everybody mucked in. Everybody was covered head to toe in clay from spinning wheels, and everybody was just having a smile on their face, and it was just fantastic. And, you know, we, we finally got off the dirt, and we're 50 miles from Chattanooga, and we stopped at a gas station. And I said to everybody, you know, it was just that was an amazing experience and it was really amazing because of you guys. I mean, just, just fabulous, fabulous attitude and, um, you know, just, just fantastic. And to me, everybody that went through <laughs> 10 minutes before or an hour before and it was dry, totally missed out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just, 
it's I, I just feel like there is room for it. I just don't know if I, if we're ready to do a modern bike mm-hmm. event. Yeah, and how? Yeah, because I mean, it, you know, in talking to Matthew Blade, like it, it's it's growing, and there's there's more people there's more people looking at road books, and and there's more interest there. But um, you know, I don't know. Is it uh, is it growing, and people are getting interested, and then being turned off because there's not other people doing it, or because there's not events and and ways to to practice or or things to do, you know, it's, it's kind of, I know there's some people that want, you know, want it easy. They just give me a GPS track. I'll follow that. And you know, we're good to go. Um, but I think there are a lot of people that enjoy the challenge of, you know, Hey, you know, we're going to ride this road book, uh, LA, uh, LA Barstow to Vegas. Have you heard of that? That one? I've done it. I've done it a couple of times. Oh, okay. Perfect. Yeah. Cause so, so they also do, you can also get a roll chart for that. Yeah, we do it for the roll chart. Um, yeah, perfect. So there's, yeah. you know, there are people that are up for it, but you know, it's like, okay, how do we, uh, how do we get together? How do we figure out, you know, get that resource for like, hey, if you're looking for roll charts, road books in these in this area, you know, this is who you need to contact, or this is where you can need to, where you can find them, or where you can do this kind of stuff. So I feel like that's still a missing kind of the missing link of people. Uh, yeah we get it's it's difficult uh, uh, this is if you contacted Barstow the guys that organise Barstow Vegas they might have the same answer as I do um, and it's people contact me for the if they can buy the roll charts and stuff like that mm-hmm. and I say no um, and the reason is that people pay me to do those roll charts mm-hmm and they pay for the experience and just with the internet, the way it is, mm-hmm. I would hate for that, that roll chart or that thing to go onto adventure rider or somewhere similar. Yeah. And then there was just everybody doing it. I feel like it kind of, in a way waters, it could potentially water down what we have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I totally sorry. Uh, cut in there yeah um i I, you know i i understand that um it's so there's a big thing down here in baja is is that you've got a bunch of tour companies that are bringing masses of people into baja and they're riding and tearing up all of these roads and doing all this stuff and causing dangerous situations um and then they leave and then they leave and you know at Three, four, five, six, seven thousand dollars a person, and there's not a whole lot of money left for the local community that could be, yeah. you know, that, that's in need of that. So, part of it, you know, originally when I had started the chasing waypoints thing, is like, hey, I am going to put out these routes that these guys are taking, so people can do them but not have to pay these people, and then that way, the money trickle down, and you know, where to stop and the places to see, almost kind of like what backcountry discovery routes does. But I agree with you. There's that fine line. It's like, well, wait, do we really want to tell, do we really want to be a part of this that could potentially ruin it? Because, of course, there's always going to be people that, you know, turn it into a racetrack or, you know, they're abusive of this kind of stuff. And it's like, uh, 
Yeah, and we're like, you know, we, we say it every year. We have a pre-ride meeting and usually something every morning before everybody leaves as well. Um, you know, we, we're always like, it's amazing. You're in the middle of the Smoky Mountains, in the middle of nowhere, and there's a house. <laughs> <laughs> and it's somebody's house, yeah. you know, and they live there every day. It's not just a weekender. Mm-hmm. And they've got a dog, and that dog's not leashed because they're in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm always like, if you see a mailbox or if you see anything that even looks remotely like there is some kind of civilization there, slow down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, be respectful. You're going through, you know, you'll find clusters of three, four houses on this many dirt roads. Slow down 10, 15, you know, miles an hour, just kind of cruise through. Make sure you're not kicking up dust and all that kind of stuff. And just, and, and because we're on old bikes, you know, we're not quite as group in all honesty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I just want to make sure that we're not, you know, irritating people and, and being disrespectful and all that kind of stuff. Even at the campgrounds, you know, we're at, um, you know, idle in and idle out and all that kind of stuff. And I just feel like, like you were saying, you know, that's that potential if it gets out there and then people start staying at the same places we were at and stuff, mm-hmm. it then becomes associated. And if it's negative, it really just doesn't do any good. And to be honest, you can go on Adventure Rider and find a GPS route. It's not my route, but it'd mm-hmm. still be a great route in the same area, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an event. I've been very conscious not to use anybody else's stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't even look at it. I just go and I look around and um, figure it out. Just so I, I don't want to be using somebody's what I see as intellectual property in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I was just doing it with some friends on a weekend, that's one thing. But if I'm, you know, making some money out of it, um, that's totally, something totally different yeah. um, to me. But yeah, it's it's really difficult because. I'd love to get. I'd love more people to get into it for sure. Um, but, but yeah, how do you? Yeah, it, it's yeah, it's that. It's that. How do you? How do you do it in such a way where more people get into it, but at the same time, you're not causing. You know, you're not causing that. I mean, and that that was one of the things like with, uh, with my time at Baja Rally was, you know, there was no GPS is allowed, and. Yeah because of the same thing because then the routes would get uh would get copied then now all you got to do and it could just be in a bag and it's just tracking the route that you're following um and then later on that gets in trouble and then in the end you know we were collecting road books and and making sure that the road books were were kept um that the competitors didn't keep them for that reason it's like hey well this is but it's because there is land use permits. There's permits uh, from the from the ranchers, from the local, the local township, and and all of that. So you you know you have yeah. to respect that part of it. Um, which, in translating into what you're doing with the like local roads and stuff like that, it could make it a lot more. Uh, the the potential for it to get out of hand is a lot because it's a public road, and that'll be the first line of defense for somebody's you know some of these people riding. It's like well, it's a public road. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I think then I think in that case is the way is like what you're already doing. Just, if we could get more events that are roadbook oriented like this, no timing is just straight up a roadbook. 
yeah. you're just going to navigate this stuff and bonus points if you can find the bivouac before 6 p.m. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a free there's a free beer waiting for you if you get there. Exactly, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. There's a free beer waiting for you if you get there at 11:30 as well, but that doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, you gotta you gotta time it right. Yeah, it's an open bar if you're there between 6:30 and 6:35, and then again at 11 to 11:35. You know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Know. But, but yeah, I, yeah. You know, I think um, you know. I, I, just with our events we don't charge i mean um we charge 650 dollars mm-hmm. um and you get your food and drink and everything for that uh roll chart support everything campgrounds you know you put gas in your bike if you have no issues all you do is pay for gas mm-hmm. um and I, I we've i think that's pretty reasonable um and so we're not like it's not a full-time business for us it mm-hmm. earns us a little bit of money which is awesome because uh, it's great to earn money doing what you love doing mm-hmm. um but we also want to keep it accessible to people and i think people do appreciate that you know and even if we did a modern bike event it wouldn't be you know because of course i'm like anybody you look at ways that you could make money doing the, the things you love doing right mm-hmm. and um you look at some of the tour companies, like you mentioned the bar ones, but there's plenty that do Colorado and wherever, and they're thousands of dollars for a, a four, you know, a four seven day trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's worth the money, um, but would I ever want to charge it? No, mm-hmm. um, because it limits it, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and I think that's another thing that I'm kind of worried about with the modern bike stuff is is does the clientele change yeah do you know what i mean like oh absolutely yeah you know is it you know and i I don't want to single out people on bmw gs's but they're twenty thousand dollars um and their gear you know most of the people you see riding those bikes Mm -hmm. their gear is worth more than the bike so we're Mm -hmm. you know a lot of these guys are riding and is the attitude different? Do they expect more from the event? Do you know what I mean? Are they, yeah. you know, is is the beer two degrees warmer than they wanted it to be? <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Is it just like, ah, uh, if uh, like somebody handed it to you, you know, it just that, that worries uh, Jamie and I a lot. It's like, do we, if we branch out into modern bike stuff, does it change the feel of the event? And then does that totally change the feel of it for us? Yeah. Um, yeah. Does it, does it turn it into more of a work than a passion? Yeah. You know, and, and it, yeah, yeah, I hear it. I mean, yeah. If, if the Starbucks is too far away, that could lead to problems. <laughs> so I hate to harp on it, but I, I write a, I've got a BMW in the garage and there's, they're all, all walks of lives, but you know, there's just so many people, it's such a diverse group that ride, uh, that ride BMWs. And for the most part, you know, everybody's pretty cool. After working, you know, putting in a few years at the shop, I can tell you everybody's pretty cool. But, yeah, there are some people that, you know, I love this bike. I love the way it looks. No, I'm not going to ride it in the dirt. And then there's the guys that are trying to ride it up the side of this mountain. And I'm going, you know, they make two strokes with uh, <laughs> with trial yeah. bike tires for that, right? You know, yeah. it's like, you know, so 
there's a there's a whole spectrum. But yeah, of course, the you know, you're right. It's the concern is, OK, well, as the group grows, you know, vintage bike guys are going to be I would feel like are going to be more inclined to the do it yourself. The the you know what? Uh, I'm going to make uh, $2 out of a penny. You know, I'm, I'm really going to try and be as efficient and effective with the, the minimal things that I have for this bike. Because it's not like yeah. you can walk, you know, down to the corner store and find a brand new one of these. Exactly. Yeah. Or anything for it at all. I mean, yeah. it's not like the Suzuki dealer socks anything for that bike, you know, <laughs> yeah. or Honda. They, you know, they might have a bolt for it. Yeah, the first thing out of their mouth, years. I'm sure, is, yeah. wait, you still own no. one of those? <laughs> yeah. I thought they crushed all those. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, but there's... There's another part of me that's like, oh, I know people, We and I did a post on Instagram uh, last week, I think, you know, mm-hmm. I was just like, who, who who thinks we should do a modern bike ride? Mm-hmm. And I think it was like 80-something percent of people that responded, and it was quite a few people said, yes, we should do. Yeah. Um, and most of those are people that have got a more modern bike mm-hmm. that want to do it. Um, so you kind of feel like, oh, man, you know, it is a really fun time and you want to share that. I want to share that, that fun time with people. Um, yeah, I just, you know, I just, uh, like I say, I don't know if we're ready. And then even, even then it's like, you know, we're limited to a fairly small number of people, but, um, you know, do you open up to more people? We've opened up to five more people this year and it's either going to work or it isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, and you think, oh, it's only five people or, um, you know, but that's another group on the road that mm-hmm. could be having problems. You know, it could be another hour on the road for me every day. It could, it's another five mouths to feed because we, we have a, um, a, a friend. Well, we used to have a friend that owns a couple of restaurants in town that used to come and cook for the, for everybody. Mm-hmm. The first couple of years, it was just, we'd, we'd figure something out, you know, and, um, since then we kind of got more organized and we have a friend that's now, um, he's now a friend, but he was a friend of the other guy that had to stop doing it. Um, he used to be a chef and now he comes and cooks for everybody. Um, so, you know, it's a really good meal when you get into camp and all that kind of stuff. But, um, it's also, you know, another five mouths for him to feed, and you almost feel like if you open up to modern bikes, you could you could easily do more people because there should be less trouble, right, on the road. Um, but who knows? It's such a yeah. It could be even worse. You know, yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. You know, uh, well, like anything, maybe it's one of those you can do it once. It goes well, great. If it doesn't, yeah. You know, well, cool. We did it once. We crossed it off the list. We tried it. You know, exactly. Yeah. So. So yeah, I mean, so if, you know, I guess, you know, I'd love to speak to you a bit more about maybe trying to do something or if you want to do something out, out west, I'd, I'd love to get involved. Yeah, we can um, uh, we definitely want to chat uh, chat offline on that one. Don't, yeah. don't want to put the plans out into the world, you know? <laughs> no, no, exactly, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I love doing this stuff and anywhere I can get involved with anything. Yeah, I absolutely. Well, yeah, and this is awesome. Like I, yeah, I'm gonna love hyping this up because 
you know, there, there's a lot of guys out here with, you know, uh, that have those vintage bikes hanging around and hanging out in corners. And, you know, I'm thinking I've already got one, uh, one buddy of mine that, that I know he's got, he's, he was one of the techs at BMW is one of the techs at BMW and he's got a couple bikes in his stuffed away in his garage. And then I think he's got some stuff still back out East where he was from in Arkansas. So I'm thinking like, eh, I think I might have somebody, you know, already for you. And, and because I, I just think it's just such a pure event and what you're doing uh, and, and with this roadbook thing and, and having the roll charts and just kind of keeping it really basic and simple. So, yeah, I think we definitely uh, we're going to have an offline chat for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <Yeah, it's, laughs> if, you, if you want to buy a vintage bike, get the lightest thing you can. The lightest like, thing, yeah. yeah. Okay. The, well, the light, yeah. Like, don't don't do it on a BMW. And so the the one that I'm seeing here that's got the the guy looks like he's on a Triumph on the Instagram. Maybe, maybe not something like that. What what color? Well, I don't know. I ride a Triumph, so I'm going to say yeah, get a Triumph. <laughs> 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 so, to, to me, it's the you know um, everybody everybody the the ride coming up in Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something like 12 or 14 or 500 cc singles cool. and they're either Honda XLs or XT 500 Yamahas mm-hmm. and you know and they kind of I guess they started making the XT in 76 I think so they're all from that kind of 76 to 80 mm-hmm. uh, age range and they're really actually pretty good bikes and um, you know can keep up with modern bikes for the right rider yeah. Um, but yeah, for, you know, there's still got a friend of mine, Thomas, who, that's the other thing about this ride. I've got so many friends that I didn't even know before the ride. Um, but Thomas rides a BMW, I think it's a thousand CC. Um, I don't think it was originally, but it's a thousand CC BMW and it's heavy. Mm-hmm. And I rode it for a little bit on one of the events the other year and it was just terrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was just, like I mean, all the weights down low, of course. But you know, if you could, there's a guy that also does it on a two-stroke Penton. Which Penton, I don't know if you know the Penton history, but essentially they be- became John Penton ended up for helping KTM. Okay. Essentially, Pentons became KTM's. Mm-hmm. Uh, as American American guy. Um, oh, I did not know that. And he does it, yeah, John Penton, his name is, um, and uh, he, this guy um, that comes on a ride, him and his twin brother, who are, they're, um, I think they're in the late 50s, maybe early 60s, I'm not too sure. They ride from Ohio to Chattanooga, do the ride, and they ride back. Nice. And Rick... Rick has done it on a 125 Penton two-stroke. I mean, it sounds uh, like a really long day. Phenomenal, but the thing's turning 10,000 RPM at like 65 miles an hour, <laughs> and and it'll it'll do it. It it will literally do it all day. That's crazy. Uh, um, but Rick's a special guy. He's a um, he's he's worked on Porsche engines all most of his adult life and stuff. Yeah. His preparation is second to none. But um, yeah. 
but when he's in the dirt, that's the perfect bike for it. But when you're on the highway, you just look across and you just think, he must be miserable. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> we don't really go on highways, you know, but there's yeah. times when we are, like the, yeah. the closest place to camp that's got, you know, a toilet. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to jump on the highway for 10 miles or something, you know. Yeah. I say highway, but 55 miles an hour. Yeah. But um, still, you're just like, oh, God, that must be terrible. It's, it's bad enough on a 650 Triumph. Yeah. And that thing, I'm sure, sounds like it's 200 RPM away from, from full seas. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It sounds like a, I guess, one of those murder hornets that they're talking about. <laughs> but it makes the rounds. Hey, whatever. <laughs> oh, man, it does it. Uh, it does it. So, yeah. Nice. Incredible. Nice. But, yeah. Okay. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, I, was, I don't know what I was going to say. Nice. Well, yeah. So we'll, uh, yeah, we'll definitely. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a call uh, maybe in the week, and we'll uh, talk a little bit more about the events and stuff like that, and uh, and what you're doing. And I'll get uh, so the best website. So I've got your Instagram already for Vintage One Thousand. Um, so I'll put that link in the description, and then yeah. uh, and then also the speeddeluxe.com. dot com. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Speed Deluxe is my vintage bike company but the website doubles as the it's, it, there's the events website um and all of our events this year are sold out um sounds like a horrible problem no. yeah terrible <laughs> um and you know um but if anybody is interested um shoot us an email or a message and just get on our mailing list because especially the eastern route um it sells out really quick nice. you know people are People give us people are giving us deposits on the last day of the ride for next year. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, if you're interested, um, you know, try and get in early. And say the west the western route next year will be in Arizona in May, okay. um, around about the same time as we're doing Utah this year. Um, cool. And we do have the 500 event, which we just, you know, we did the 500 for the last two years and that was really just to cater it's friday saturday sunday mm-hmm. um just to cater for people that can't get away for a full week you know um we had a lot of requests for it so we decided you know let's do it um yeah that's a great uh i i think that's a good for a small event 500 miles i mean that's that's three solid days of riding for sure yeah yeah so yeah i like that uh, nice yeah, so. all right well, perfect. Well, I appreciate you taking time and uh, introducing us this whole thing, and then uh, I'm excited. <laughs> I think we can do some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it's, um, like I say, I'd love for you to come on the events, and um, you know, maybe we can get together and do some modern stuff as well, and um, and figure something out, and just promote the 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 the, the road books and that kind of stuff because it, you know. Uh, I feel like it's like you say it's probably the way forward um in terms of just enjoyability and just yeah. you know riding it's just fantastic so like yeah. say anything I can do to to promote it um and and maybe do some more events and yeah, yeah. great It'd be great to talk talk oh, about it offline yeah absolutely yeah definitely definitely up for it i mean i know that'll uh you know more people will get interested you know as long as long as you know, we can continue to put more resources out there, more road books, more things where they can, um, where there's something to do. You know, and I was like, "Hey, great! I spent a thousand dollars on this navigation equipment, but um, I don't know what to do with it." 
So yeah, yeah, to- yeah. totally. Yeah. I mean, and you know, the other great thing about roadbook stuff is that um, if it's not a race, you know, not everybody's competitive. So um, you know, it it's t- it makes it totally different. It, it makes a non-competitive ride a lot more fun. Yeah, um, and you know, but still. You know, it gives you some. It also gives you something to talk about the camp every night as well. You know, I'm sure you've seen that um, mm-hmm. where people, even if you, you've mentioned doing roll charts between friends and just riding the friends roll chart and talking about, well, how did I get ahead of you when you were ahead of me, and you know that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it just enhances the ride to me. So, yeah, absolutely. All about it. Same here. Well, sweet. Well, thank cool. you, thank you very much for for coming and taking the time. And we'll, uh, I'll give you a call in the week, and we'll we'll talk yeah. a little bit more about it, see if we can come up with something. Cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's uh, it's kind of been fun talking about uh, the event and just looking back a little bit on it. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, the, the beginnings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Nice. <laughs> All right, Adam. Well, you have. I know you're on the East Coast, so you have a. Have a good evening. Enjoy the rest of uh, the weekend, and uh, we'll chat soon. Yeah, you too. Sounds good. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. All right. So that was pretty interesting. So got a chance to talk. That was Adam from Speed Deluxe. He's got his shop in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and they do a couple of events, uh, vintage bikes, so pre-80s and... Very, very interesting. It's it's cool. I, I'm happy to see that we've got the vintage bike thing going down. Now I'm like, wow, you could build something and, you know, it could be, uh, you know, just complete barn find uh, and actually go ride in and do that kind of stuff. And I'm definitely up for the Flagstaff uh, and Utah one. You know, that's a little closer to home. Uh, I've ridden a little bit or driven around uh, the area in Flagstaff. And for those that uh, have done that, you know that it's very, very picturesque and really, really nice out there. So um, definitely, definitely worth it. So that is going to be a wrap for this week's episode. Uh, I am going to put the links to Adam's uh, website on the description of the podcast and also his Instagram. So if you guys want to look up and see a little bit more, they got a lot of really, really cool pictures on their uh, Instagram page. Definitely going to want to check that out uh, and then also take a look at the website. But if you like the podcast, you like what you heard, you've got a suggestion. Maybe you want to come on. you got something going on with road books or something with motorcycles uh, or just generally getting lost in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we want to hear about it. So don't forget, like, subscribe. If you like the podcast, you can find us on Facebook under Chasing Waypoints, Instagram at Chasing Waypoints underscore official. YouTube and Facebook, I already said Facebook, but YouTube, same thing, Chasing Waypoints. And again, any ideas, any any of that kind of stuff, we'd be happy to have you on. Next week, uh, we are going to have Jacob Argybright on the show. We're going to be talking a little bit about uh, his rally training and what he has been doing. He is also, uh, he is kind of starting from zero. He's got some roadbook experience, but now is expanding and, and going a little bit more into it. So, Excited to talk to him. Uh, actually going to be talking to him tomorrow, but you guys won't get to hear it until uh, next week. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit. And so absolutely stoked. But anyway, thank you guys for listening. Don't forget, like, subscribe, share. I'm going to post this on Facebook so you guys can comment uh, on it on Facebook. If there's questions or anything like that or you want to get in touch, I'm sure Adam will be on there as well. and He can answer any of the questions that you may have. So 
All right, that is a wrap. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.